0: So far for, There we go. And happy new book. We get a new book to uh, go through this second semester. Hope you're all awake and alert this morning uh, as we dig into the word. And I can only imagine that for some of you in this room, maybe many of you, uh, about 24 hours ago you were still asleep. So this might come as a shock to you. Welcome back to school. If you have your Bibles, turn them, please, to the book of James. Uh, that is the book we are going to go through. It's found in the New Testament, almost way at the far right-hand side, close to the ends of your Bibles. My task today is twofold. Uh, the first thing I'm going to do is introduce the book to you, and with that, I've got a, a bit of a power uh, PowerPoint here to, to work through, and then I get kind of the first crack at at verses, so I get the first 12 verses in this book, so let's begin. If you would, please join me in prayer. Lord God, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. So if you look at James, start with the first verse with me. This is where we'll get our author and our audience from this text. And so, oh, this isn't working great. I love when that happens. Maybe. Maybe not. It'll be okay. Verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So we get from this our author. Our author is James. So uh, it's, it's okay if it doesn't work. Um, James calls himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you have kind of a parallel there between God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and, and all that that represents for us with the deity of Christ and everything that we need is found in Christ. And so our author is James. Now, who is James? Well, James is a brother of Jesus. He's a half-brother of the Lord Jesus. He was a leader in the church in Jerusalem. Uh, They had this great uh, Jerusalem council in Acts 15. James is there as the leader of the church. Uh, Paul talks about James in Galatians chapter 1. He calls him a pillar in uh, Galatians chapter 2. So who is this James? He's the half-brother of Christ. He's the pillar of the church in Jerusalem. And other uh, extra-biblical literature identifies him as James the Just. What 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 a nickname. Who are you? I'm James the Just. In short, he was a godly man. He had a passion for obedience and prayer. It was said about James that he was so devoted to prayer uh, that his knees formed calluses on them. And they said about his knees, good old James the Just, that he was old camel knees. His knees looked like those of camel's. So uh, calloused they were. James' death is of note. He died by being thrown off the temple. And then that didn't get him, so then they beat him with clubs. So, again, all but John, of, of the original apostles, of the original disciples, all but John suffered horrific, gruesome deaths as a result of, of their love for Christ. John got exiled, and before he got exiled, he got boiled in hot oil. So that's James. James is our author. James is a a leader. He's a pillar. He's the brother of Christ. Now, who's our audience? And our audience is is quite interesting. Uh, They are Christian churches made up of both Jew and Gentile. So it's not just Jewish Christians. It's, It's Jew and Gentile. So you have Jews and non-Jews, and they are away from Jerusalem. Remember, James is in Jerusalem, and he's writing it to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. He is is writing it to these churches. They're outside of the religious life of of Judaism. They're outside of the religious life of of Christianity there as it's kind of percolating there in Jerusalem. And they're away from all of this. So so James looks at them and says, you are dispersed. You're away from your home. And so there's a kind of an earthly view of dispersion. But there's also a heavenly view of dispersion that, that James is hitting on. The idea that this is not our home. Our home is not here. This is not where we live. Our home is in heaven. And from it we await the Savior Jesus Christ the Lord, that's what Paul says. That's what James is telling him. You are dispersed from your true home. And what we see in James and Peter and Paul is that the church is the continuation of true Israel from the Old Testament. And what you will see in this is heavy usage of the Old Testament language, synagogue, law, all of this stuff now applied to the New Testament church. Okay? Now James was meant to be a circular letter. It would be passed from church to church of those that were in this dispersion. And so it's it's what is called a a general letter. It's it covers general topics that churches would deal with and would be applicable to different churches. So, a couple of the things that that James stresses is, first and foremost, there's conflict in the churches. And if you live long enough, and if you go to church long enough, you will have conflict in your church. And so this is a good oh, this is a good epistle for us to, to focus on so that we don't get all bent out of shape over the color of carpet, or whether we have pews or chairs, or, uh, I don't like the pink color. We are so selfish, and this book kind of strikes at that. And then secondly, others have fallen into a worldly lifestyle. They are typified by a word that we'll see later in our text, double-mindedness. And I had a pastor back in Korea. He always talked about double-mindedness as having two feet firmly in midair. And you are unstable, you are waving, uh, wavering between the things of God and the things of the world. You are, in essence, trying to straddle a fence. The date of writing, uh, most people consider this to be the earliest New Testament epistle, early to mid-40s AD. It's kind of a debate whether it's it's this, maybe the Gospel of Mark, maybe Galatians, but James is w- up there in terms of earliness of, of writing. So early to mid-40s AD, which puts it roughly 7 to 12 years after the death of Jesus. So this would still be fresh in their minds. Um, this whole idea of, of what Christ had done for them was still fresh in their minds. They were starting to undergo persecution because, remember, in that time, To be a Christian uh, was not a good thing. It was looked down upon by the Jewish people, by the Jewish leaders, by the Roman state. And so these poor Christians were kind of getting stuck between a vice. And on one side is the Jewish religious kind of establishment. And then you have on the other side, Rome. And they were squeezing the church. Okay? Squeezing her out. Trying to. Trying to. Themes. I've got four. You could go so many. (laughs) James is just loaded. Uh, The big idea is living out your faith. So putting your faith into action. Uh, James isn't just okay with the idea of essentia or I just know these things and I assent to them. No, I need to have true belief, which then leads to action. So true knowledge leads to true belief, which leads to true right action. James will put it this way, be a doer of the word and not just a hearer only. Be an actual doer. Get after it. Work out your faith muscles. Work out your belief muscles. That's what James is after. Our theme for today and pretty much the entire first chapter is the idea of persevering under trials and fighting through those and not letting go. In chapter three and elsewhere, it talks about the use of our tongue and our speech and the right way to use your speech and the wrong way to use your speech and, and the whole idea that death and life is in the power of the tongue, that by what I say to somebody, I can kill them and I can also encourage. And he warns us, not all of us, to be teachers, for there will be harder and stricter judgment. And then this, quite frankly, is a wisdom book. So wisdom and the power of prayer. And so when we get to genre, um, which is the next thing, what we will see here is it, it's a oh sorry it's a it's a smattering. The genre is, well, it's an epistle, because James is writing this, two different churches, so it's an epistle. But it's not just an epistle. It's it's wisdom literature. It reads similar to kind of the Proverbs of the New Testament. That's what people look at it as. So, so seventh graders, eighth graders, as you're going through Proverbs, maybe some of what James is talking about will apply to you as you're going through Proverbs. And Mr. Mankin and Mr. Flynn can come up with some kind of some corollaries, some, some parallels between the book of James and the book of Proverbs as you guys are going through it. Because what this is, you, you see lots of Proverbs, aphorisms, uh, there's satire in this book, big time. And then w- one of the most important things about James is James isn't at all like Paul's epistles. We've gone through Philippians, we've gone through Colossians, uh, we've gone through those Maybe others, I I forget. I think there was just those two. Paul uses a lot of of what in the Greek is called um, imperative, but you also have the idea of the indicative phrasing, which is this is who you are in Christ, and therefore, because of who you are in Christ, this is how you live. Okay? We see it in Romans chapter 12. You get... 11 wonderful chapters of doctrine. This is who you are in Christ. Therefore, by the mercies of God, I tell you, lay your life down as a living sacrifice. Live as a living sacrifice. Okay, that whole idea. Ephesians, chapters 1 through 3, doctrine, deep doctrine. This is who you are in Christ. You were dead, but now you're alive. Therefore, I urge you, walk worthy of the gospel. Okay, so James isn't like that. James just beats you over the head with command after command after command after command. It's very imperative driven. It's very uh, command driven. 108 verses in James, 50 commands, 50. And so here's our problem sometimes with James is... We go into James and we all assume, oh, I'm good, I'm a believer, I've got this, and we miss Christ in James. And so let's never, ever, ever miss Christ and what he has done for us in James. The the reason why people love James, it's, it's exceedingly practical, it calls us to action, it doesn't just call us to mere belief. Mere assent, mere knowledge. So in short, James, half-brother of Jesus, he's the leader of the Jerusalem church. He writes about genuine religion and wisdom. This is wisdom literature in the New Testament. He stresses godly living for the glory of God. He stresses prayer and faith, the perfect law of liberty, good works, and how to encounter and remain steadfast through various trials. So let's get to the rest of the text. Verses 2 through 12. James writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So I've entitled the sermon, When Trials Come, and I've got four headings for you. The first heading is the purpose of trials. That's verses two through four, the purpose of trials. Second heading will be the plea in trials, and that'll be verse five. The third heading is the perspective of our plea in trials. And then finally, verse 12, will give us the promise in trials. So here they are, lots of Ps in this. It's my uh, Presbyterian alliteration, I suppose. So, the purpose of trials, verses 2 through 4. So I'm going to read it again. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, then you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the idea here is the purpose of trials. And James starts off this with something just astounding, if you think about it. Count it all joy, my brothers, when? And imagine, you're the audience and you're hearing this. And before he keeps going, whoever's reading it, maybe your your brain starts going somewhere. When? Well, count it all joy when all is well. When, When the sun is shining down on me and the world is all as it should be, blessed be your name. Is Is it joy when God gives me everything that I need? Count it all joy when you sow a seed of good and good comes back? Nope. Count it all joy when you face trials of various types. Okay, James. Count it all joy when we face trials of various kinds. What? How? Why? Why? Oh, why, James, do you start there? Look at how it goes on. For you know. This is obvious. This is duh. Of course you know. Count it all joy when you face trials of different kinds, for you know. What do I know? That the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So here's James's logic. Here it is. Count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. Because, because trials produce steadfastness. Count it all joy when you face trials because trials produce steadfastness. And steadfastness leads to something. Namely, you to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So in short, What James is telling us is trials are given to you by God to produce perseverance and sanctification and maturity and Christ-likeness. How do you learn patience? Trials. How do you become more like Jesus? Trials. How do you become more mature in your faith? Trials. Trials. Oh, do you see? Oh, how we need our minds to be shaped, to have confidence in God's sovereignty. And here's another P, providence. That God providentially works in all things, including your trials, to bring you good. Do you believe that? If you can get your head around this truth, It will change how you look at trials and suffering and sorrow and misery because, here's the other thing, this is so contrary to the way that our world works. Our world tells us, avoid trials at all costs. Avoid them. Don't keep score at games because somebody might lose, and if you lose, you feel bad, and it's a trial, and we can't have anyone ever feel bad. And if you have a trial, get out of it quickly. Get out fast. Numb it. Do whatever you can to get away. And if it's there, numb the pain. This is our world. Remove all stressors from your life. Get rid of toxic people. Leave the job with your mean boss. If marriage gets hard, because guess what? It gets hard. Leave it what our world says never feel guilty never feel shame and never ever ever feel bad that's our world and if you have a trial grumble about it complain moan murmur or vent about it to your friends and James comes in with something so extraordinary and so countercultural and so strange to this world. Count it joy. Count it joy. Wh- what? And see if I may press here a bit. James says various kinds of trials as well. Here's what I know after. 44 revolutions around the sun. There are a variety of trials, and they are not all the same. I've had friends lose babies. There are financial difficulties that you might go through. Your marriage could be on the ropes. Family can be a deep source of pain in your life. Friendships can fade and dissolve. Your health might fail you. Seniors, your dream school might send you back the little envelope instead of the big envelope, which means you got rejected from your dream school. Persecution will come. You can even sow a thousand seeds of good and still reap a harvest of pain. The point is, is that there are a variety of trials you will or have gone through over the course of your life. That's what James is getting at here. You will, as many pastors have said, you will either be going through a trial, just coming out of a trial, or about to go back into one. That is life in this broken world. So here's a fact, and I challenge you to write this down. In God's providence you will go through trials. In God's providence, you will go through trials. You will, that's a promise. You will. Through many tribulations, we will enter the kingdom of God, says Paul. You will. But write this down as well. Right next to it. Bigger. God is doing something in it. You will, in the providence of God, face many trials. You will go through many trials, but God is doing something in that trial. And that's more important than the trial cannot be possibly more emphatic about this. Unless you see that God is behind it, in it, and purposeful with your trial, you will doubt how good God is. You'll miss it. You'll doubt and grumble and moan. Why? Because within each of us is this little tyrant. and This tyrant believes that We would be the best ruler of the world. That I know better than God. And that little tyrant rises up within you. And me, when things do not go our way and screams, Not fair! God isn't good in this. Life would be easier if. Hey, I sowed a seed of good. Doesn't God owe me good? Good. We all have that petulant baby within us. What about me? Doesn't God owe me? Oh, beware of this mentality, Nebraska Christian. God doesn't owe us anything. And yet in his love, he gives us life and breath and everything. Oh, what a generous, gracious God we have. Please don't turn that into a sinful notion that God owes you anything. Don't miss another word in this. Verse 2, brothers, brothers. Count it all joy, my brothers. So often, when trials come, we are prone to doubt prone to doubt. Maybe even doubt that we're his. Maybe even doubt that he's good. Or we see this as some sort of punishment from God, that we're cursed by God, that we're in a calamity and that God is not there. But don't forget this. If you are in Christ, then you are brothers. The question that James is also going to get you to consider as we read this is, are you in Christ? Are you truly in Christ? This book is a sledgehammer. And it just comes and beats you, and beats you, and beats you, and beats you. and chisels you, and it's good. And it tears you open, and it's good. But hear this, my brothers, if you are brothers, then you are Christ's. And if you are Christ's, then everything God does for you is for your good. Every trial, every pain, every dead end road, good, good, good. Oh, and see: in your trials, you can either run to God or you can run away from God. And if you run from him, you're running away from the only remedy you have in the the trial that you're in. He's the only hope you have. And when you run from him, you run from your escape. You run from your hope. Look at verse 5. This is the second heading. The plea in trials. The plea in trials. James says it like this, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. James in the context of trials tells us to ask God, to plead with God. When you lack wisdom, oh, how we need God's wisdom when we go through trials. Look at what it says about God's nature. He gives generously to all without reproach. Oh, what a generous God we serve. What a kind God. Come boldly, Hebrews tells us, to the throne of grace that we might find grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. James tells us, just come to the fountain of all wisdom to find wisdom to help you during your trial. Ask him. Oh, and see, when trials come, how's your prayer life? How is it? Do you seek God? Do you run to him? Do you seek him for wisdom? Or do you turn insular? I'm going to figure this out. I've got it. I'm the one I'm looking for. James commands us, ask God for wisdom that you might do that which is pleasing to him. Remember this God who loves to give generously to all who come to him. He is so generous. He is so kind. He is so good. So again, do you run to God or do you run from him? Third heading. The perspective of our plea and trials is verses six through eight. But, Let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man and stable in all of his ways. Here's your perspective in your plea. Faith. Trust. Confidence. Believing that God is generous. Believing that God is good. Do you believe that? Do you? Or, putting it negatively, no doubting. Don't doubt. He then describes the doubter. He's like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Very unstable. Very unsettled. Very uncertain. Verse 8, he's called a double-minded man. Two feet firmly in midair you're of two minds you're kind of schizophrenic on this side I trust God on this side I don't trust God and you are unstable in all of your ways all over the place and the doubter receives nothing as it is seen in verse 7 so again are you going to run to him Or are you going to run away from him? Finally, the promise in trials, verse 12. Scan down with me to verse 12. James has an interlude there in verses 9 through 11. I'm going to skip that. Uh, The whole idea of rich and poor come up again in chapter 2. So I'm going to keep with my theme of trials and hope that whoever comes here for chapter 2, partiality, uh, will talk about rich and poor as well or you can just read it on your own all right but let's scan down to verse 12 blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which god has promised to those who love him what a precious promise what a glorious promise blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial For when he has stood the test, he will, it's a promise, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. And so, if you look at it, we have now come full circle. Look on up to verse 2, and verse 3, and verse 4, and compare it against verse 12. You have this idea of steadfastness that is produced when you count it all joy, when you face trials of various types. The trials produce steadfastness. The trials produce that patience and that endurance and that perseverance and that persistence. And then, at the end of the day, what James then says is, blessed is is the man who remains steadfast. What do trials produce? Steadfastness. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trials. Blessed are you. What, what this is talking about in verse 12 is future resurrection. This is heaven. Blessed is this man. You are going to receive the crown of life. You're going to be with God forever. Get the massive blessing of being with God Forever and ever and ever and ever. I will be their God. And they will be my people. When he comes, we will be like him. When he comes, we will see him. Because we will be as he is. Eternal life forever and ever and ever. And so we come full circle. Verses 2, 3, and 4 is for us in the present time. In the present time, count it all joy when you face trials. Why? Because trials produce steadfastness. Steadfastness leads to your completeness. That's present day. And then you have this future. Remain steadfast. Keep going. Keep going. Press on. Steadfastness, which is being produced by trials, what happens in the future? You receive the crown of life. It is promised to God, by God, to those who love him. So finally, with all of that stated, when trials come, not if, when trials come, will you run to God? Will you run from God? Let's pray. Oh Lord God, I pray that you would fix our steps. I pray that we would not stagger at the uneven motions of this world. But may our steps take us to our glorious home. We acknowledge the fact that The winds and the waves here are rough. The trials and the tribulations here are difficult. Our own sin crushes us. And I pray, Father, that you would reach down your most most glorious hand, your saving hand, and deliver us. Deliver us from our own sin. Deliver us and help us through our trials. I pray, Father, that we would live here as pilgrims. That we would see that heaven is our beloved home. And that we would see that in every trial you are producing something in us that will make heaven even more glorious. And so, Father, we await and pray for and hope for that great crown of life which you will give to all who love you. And I pray, Father, for our hearts, that our hearts would be filled with love for you. And I pray for those who are cold toward you, dead toward you, uh, that you would awaken their souls, awaken their hearts, give strength to them, save them by your mighty and glorious power. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.